I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I'm joined by European tour player, Richie Ramsey. Richie is the uh, former U.S. amateur champion, a three-time winner on the European tour, and uh, burgeoning golf course architecture nut. Richie, welcome on. Thanks for having me. Um, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's... Uh, Always exciting to talk to guys that can talk about, you know, competitive golf and playing golf at the highest level, but also architecture. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um been playing golf for a long, long time now since I was a little kid and fortunate to travel to some far from places and um experience a lot of different courses and cultures and stuff. So um definitely got a uh, a, fr- a fresh look at some some architecture and um with a lot of travels on the european tour and and um and also coming from britain got a pretty traditional aspect of it mixed in there so yeah that's kind of my my new thing at the moment is is learning a bit more about the great designers and and what drove them and their their skill set and um how it's developed over the last well probably 80 or 90 years yeah, and then in your case, uh, where you grew up, I mean, over the last two hundred plus years, or no? Oh yeah, hundred. Yeah, long, yeah. long time. I can't do that math. Um, so Richie, <laughs> uh, why don't you uh, give uh, our listeners a little bit of background? Um, how do you, you know, get into golf and uh, and just kind of your story? All right, I'll try and. Um... I tend to to rabble a bit, which um, I'll try and I'll try and cut it as as quickly as I can do it with um, with a little timeline. Um, so basically, yeah, I started golf when I was a little kid, you know, hitting plastic balls and plastic clubs in the, the back garden. Um, but like any Scottish kid or most Scottish kids, um, I wanted to play football, so soccer, not American football. Um, when I was younger and by the time I got to about 13 or 14 um, I started to realize that I was decent at football but I was never great and uh, I was far better at golf um, and it was my grandfather who got me into it he used to take me to the nine holer cut down clubs and wrap tape around them like you know you just buy tape in a, like a, a tennis shop or something any kind of tape just wrap it around um, and, uh, yeah, he used to take me up. I remember the, the, the Volvo he used to drive. It was like a tank. It wouldn't, you can, it would, it would knock anything else off the road. Um, it was like the most drive. safe car ever built. Yeah. He would, he would, he would drive it pretty ruthlessly. It wasn't too many indicators or too many looks. It was just 
foot down at the floor, which was quite uh, quite amusing. Um, but yeah, he was he was a huge influence on me, and um, you know he was an ex he was an ex uh, RAF serviceman, um, and he was a head teacher at school, so he had quite a quite a strong sense of direction. Um, and it wasn't until after he passed away that I realised he was actually um, uh, he was an he had an MBE, which is a member of the British Empire, I think. Which is you get that bestowed on you by the Queen. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of you know I had a huge amount of respect for my grandfather when he was alive, but even more so when he after he passed because I started to realise and research a bit about him. So. He was the biggest influence on, on me. Um, so yeah, fifteen, started playing some tournaments, and I finished second to my good friend now uh, George Murray at under sixteens, Scottish Trophy, and realised you know maybe there's a future in this for me because I, I played well, but I only lost by a shot, and I felt that I could have won. Um, so then you know travelled the world, played under eighteen, under twenty one. Um, Played for Europe and uh, New Zealand. Um, played all around the world. Played Japan. Everywhere you can imagine. South Africa, Eisenhower Trophy. Um, and played Walker Cup 2005. And um, had a spell in America for a year on a golf scholarship. Came back around about that time. And had four years at university in Sterling. Um, got a degree there. Um 2006 won the US Amateur and after that finished my degree and then 2007 turned pro and with a degree in my pocket and, and kind of gave it a shot and from then I feel like I progressed through the Challenge Tour after a couple of years and um, I've been on the main tour since 2009 mm-hmm. so won three times uh, South African Open uh, Amiga European Masters um and the Hassan Trophy too, which is um in Morocco. So um You you're so, a global winner. Yeah, yeah. I've managed to managed to chalk up a few all over the place and I suppose that's the it's not it says it's a European tour, but we're as a global a tour as you're gonna get without playing um in North America, really, or South America. So everywhere else we pretty much go to. And lots of air miles, lots of airports. Um, I, I wonder how th- many guys have won on, like, six continents. Because you could win in Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, and then the U.S. That I mean, that'd be pretty incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the last four tournaments I played... Um, in 2017, we're on four different continents week after week. That's, uh, so. it's, it's crazy. It's a, it definitely is uh, turning into a world tour. I, obviously, uh, you know, air travel has made it a lot easier. Um, kind of going back to when you turned pro, you were you played as an amateur in the in the Masters, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship. And I know that year was a Walker Cup year. Um, did you put much thought into staying am and, and, and playing in the Walker Cup for a second time? Um, you know what? I, I thought about it, um, and I didn't know really until 
about the start of the summer, um, and I really thought to myself, there were three reasons for it. I'm, I'm quite a logical guy, and I like to, you know, me and my coach talk it through, and, and if he asks me a question, he knows that I can always validate the answer. So the sort of three reasons behind it were, one, that I just felt it was time, I felt it was plateauing out, and I wanted to push myself a little bit more. Um, I had already played the Walker Cup, so I'd already had that experience. Um, two was that all the other guys who were playing the Walker Cup it was a strong GBI team, and when that Walker Cup was over, they'd all be looking for invites um, to tournaments. And if I turned pro before that, I would have far greater access to invites. Mm-hmm. So that was the way I was thinking, just to get myself starts in tournaments. Um, and three, can I remember the third one? I don't know if I can. <laughs> there was a third one, but I can't remember it. Um, so it was kind of gut feeling, but the way things were lined up for me, I felt that it was the best to just to turn pro at that time and and uh, and try and get a foothold on on one of the pro tours, and that's what you really have to do. You, the two things, I mean, I discussed it the other day with someone when you turn pro, are really you have to find somewhere to play, and, and it helps if it's a good competitive tour like Challenge Tour, Web.com, or obviously the main tours. Um, and you have to have money to play on those tours. Mm-hmm. So those are your, those are your two main things I think really to accomplish. Yeah, you've seen a couple kids from the states turn pro after their first semester this year, and the logic behind it and it makes a lot of sense is like you know these kids turn pro after they graduate or after their their school year, but then there there aren't enough tournaments to get starts in to fill your you know seven or eight sponsors exemptions while you know by the end of the year because of the way it's laid out yeah it's i'm surprised that these this day and age i'm I'm, some of the decisions i see people make are i don't really understand them i under i totally get everybody's individual and I'm, I'm a massive believer in that because in myself I'm quite individual in the way I approach stuff and the way I look at things and what I believe in um, but I, I sometimes think people make decisions and almost make it harder for themselves and it's, it's a it's a hard enough task as it is to get a foothold in the professional tour um, so whatever you do has to be thought through you know, have a mentor, your coach, or someone from outside look at it and maybe throw up a few other issues with it. And hopefully you can come to a solid decision and one that gives you the best chance to progress in the game. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you got to maximize your chances because that's almost what it's such a it's such a crazy sport. Like it's the difference between it and say like, you know, American like football or American basketball or I imagine soccer like when you're playing on a lower tier team you get a you get a salary you get your food paid for your travel paid for but in golf it's it's all on you it's all performance 
Oh yeah, yeah, it's all on you, and I think, I think it's, you know, it can be hard because the way the media present a lot of the guys who come through, it's kind of like, oh, he just turned pro and then he got a foothold, and well, look at John Ram, he did it and he turned pro and you know he's a multiple winner now and whatever top five in the world and McElroy did it, and I was like. But for every one, you know, there's tens of thousands, maybe if not hundreds of thousands who don't make it. Um, these are exceptions to the rule. These are, I mean, McElroy, I would say he's a one, he's not even a one in a decade player. He's a one, he's a player that comes along every. He's like a generational guy. Well, I, yeah, I would say at least every 50 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of talent, the sheer talent he has, I think there's only. In my mind, there's only haven't played with every single person, but there'd be you'd have this, you know, one hand to cut, and other people have the same amount of talent he does, mm-hmm. um, and that's close to him. That's not even probably the amount he has as just one person. Well, so I I think back to my junior golf days, and a name that now he's really having a lot of success was is Brian Harmon. But as a junior, I mean, he absolutely dominated golf i mean he was he was a two-time walker cup player um probably one of the best junior golfers of all time and now at age 31 he's you know really starting to become an elite american player but it takes time for a lot of guys it's it's so rare to have someone like spieth or someone like mcelroy have such success before they're 24 oh yeah yeah and um i think guys just guys just turn pro younger these days as well I, I don't know why the reasoning behind that maybe I think they see you know the maybe the lifestyle and think you know I want that I don't want to go to university they just want it and, and go for it early out of the, out of the gates um, you know I played against funny enough I played against Brian Harmon a Walker Cup um, he was he's you know he's a great he's also a great talent very natural player good belief in himself Um and I think I won one against him and lost one, but the guy who was the most talented, and he's in the top five most talented guys I've ever played with, and we played against him, was Anthony Kim. Mm -hmm. He was the real deal. He was just, you know, drove it well, pretty long, good iron player, um, great natural ability to shape shots, uh, aggressive, Good putter, just wasn't a weakness in his game. You know, he he still to this day was like, I mean, he he could have won majors, I think, multiple majors, no doubt about it. It's uh, it's definitely one of the sadder stories of golf. Um, In terms, was there anybody like, uh, you know, just out of this world talent that you've seen that's given up on the game, like that you grew up playing against? Um, <clears throat> trying to think, he was not really. I think he was he was the one guy who always stood out to me. And and, not, and people ask me who's the most talented guys you've ever played with. Well, been fortunate to play with Tiger, who's obviously immensely talented. Um, Rory and Sergio had put in this, in in the same bracket, very close to each other. But um, for someone who doesn't even play now, Anthony was the one who, who stood out. 
um and just yeah it's a it's a real shame that it, it just you know I don't know the reasons but it just didn't just didn't come to fruition and work out because he was um just so naturally just looked so naturally talented um and um it was one of those guys you were like yeah I'd, I'd pay to watch him because he's he's legit you know he gets the job done Hey, uh, I'm waiting for Anthony Kim to get his uh, amateur status back and start becoming a menace on the mid-amp circuit in America. <laughs> be worst nightmare. Yeah, he could. Uh, I think he would enjoy that. <laughs> Playing in a golf cart and a few drinks, he'd be all right at that. Yeah, cocktail tour would uh, be shook shook from uh, Anthony Kim uh, revival. You you meant like how is your perception? of golf and like competition changed, um, over the years? Um, I would say there, there's just a lot more people who don't, uh, give up as much. And what I mean by that is there's far more people who are committed, you know, who do the right things, who, um, you know, go to the gym, make sure they stretch, have a physio, um, you know, go out and practice, dedicated, disciplined, um, you know, play play aggressive. Uh, definitely, unfortunately, I would say there's more one-dimensional, not one-dimensional players, but just longer hitters who can dominate golf courses um, with length. And it's, you know, they're not playing the same golf course I am. It's simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that happens not every week, but some weeks. Um, and yeah, just overall, the, the competition is stronger and it's deeper at the same time. So yeah, the level of commitment commitment of players has gone up. I think the distance, more the, the more guys, you know, who just flat out just bomb it rather than you see them really working the ball and shaping shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the strength and depth. Yeah. That's, I noticed that I was at the BMW this year and I was watching Rory play with, um, Ollie Schneider dance and Ollie was hitting it like right up even with Rory all day pretty much. And I thought back and I'm like, God, you know, like, Eight, seven, eight years ago, Rory was like twenty yards past everybody. Yeah, there's just everybody's bigger. You know, there's a lot more guys who are bigger on tour who really have got a club head speed, and that really makes a difference. Um, and it's the way it's going. And I kind of feel it's a little bit of a shame because that's how some of the new courses build it and it actually gives more of an advantage. You know, I love the, I always love the, the line over tiger proofing Augusta. Mm-hmm. Well, you're just playing, you, what you're doing is you're playing into his hands and taking it away from the guys who are the, the bigger hairs. If you want to tiger proof it, you now are the fairways at 300 yards or put bunkers further down, you know, make it so you, so it's, it's, it's narrower and tighter. Um, and it just it shows you can tell golf courses you play, which are you know look at Hilton Head. I mean look at the guys who do well there. Um, you know Kutcher, Luke Donald, 
T-Mac, um, can't remember all of them, but I mean, look, you know, they're up there, they can work the ball, move the ball, um, real shot makers, straight off the tee, tidy short games, good technical tactical awareness um, of getting the ball around the golf course. You never, I mean, when do you ever see a guy who stands up and bombs it and do well around there? It's not, not it's really. Not often. As I had Bill Coor on, and he was talking about Trinity Forest, the course he designed, and and he talked about the idea of making courses shorter and wider because it, it forces players to, you know, not only hit the ball straight, but they have to pick a line and hit it at the right distance as opposed to just hitting it straight, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a lot what Harbortown is. Do you do you kind of schedule your events with that in mind? Oh, yeah. There's, uh, there's definitely places that, uh, you know, I, I look at and I think I can win there, definitely. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. And there's some places that I look at and I think I could win there, but I still need to play really, really well to finish top 10 because it gives some guys a huge advantage. It doesn't punish them where, it's, where I think it should do. Like, um, uh, where I'm trying to think of somewhere like uh, like a lot of the cool golf courses in China are really favour the guys who move it um, we used to play a cool golf course there called Lake Malloran and it was really bomber central soft and if you could shift it it made a big difference but then you put them you, you flip that and you, you put me around you, you put me around Valderrama now, that's just like a tunnel most holes, and I love that. I could play golf there every day for the rest of my life and I'd be a happy man. Um, but some people absolutely hate it because it's, it's narrow, you have to move it, there's a bit of wind, and it really is like, you know, you come off there and you shoot under par and, you know, you give yourself a pat on the back because that's a hell of a round of golf. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I mean, Valderrama had... Uh... What a couple of, was it two years ago? Uh, beef one shooting over par, right? For the four rounds, yeah. I played with him in a couple of those rounds, I think. Um, and it was, it was, it was very tricky. It was strong, strong wind, and obviously, the greens are quite fast and they're quite small targets. And um, the rough at the side of the greens was absolutely brutal. Like, if you missed it by two yards inside the green, you could. You know, I remember having one and I was like, there was one round where I was off the green by less than three yards and every single time I was chipping away from the pin because I couldn't go at it because it I couldn't control it and it was so quick that it would be chipping off the other side. So um, that was just really tough conditions, but it is a phenomenal golf course and um, it just makes you think. Uh, and you have to think about all the shots, you know, sometimes hitting, you know, like the first hole, really, really spinny green. You stand there and you get the wind into, which you know is above the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have that nine air and you can hit 110 yards, you can't, you can't control the ball. So that's, that's something you just got to, you got to have. It's, you know, it's, a lot less one-dimensional than I say some of the modern golf courses are. So it, it kind of brings up an interesting point. I with um, with the difference, you know, playing in Europe and on the European tour, you play obviously all over the world. 
How big of an adjustment is it going, you know, from playing golf in, say, you know, the British Isles um, to these different parts of the world? Well, it's a massive adjustment. It used to be, you know, I argue to a lot of people, it used to be to our advantage because we generally used to play in Europe. So, yeah, time difference was was help, helping us. The type of courses, the type of grass, the temperature. Um, but these days it actually goes the opposite way. It probably favours a lot of the guys who play abroad more. I mean, it's it's just not the same type of golf. You know, you play a lot more golf along the ground. Um, there's far more wind, so your, your, your ball flight needs to be stronger and it needs to be more penetrating. You don't just stand up and hit it up in the sky and drop it down. Around the greens is dramatically more different from the fact that you know you're you're keeping it on the ground you're putting a lot more you're not playing these sort of flop shots as much mm-hmm. um from from thick rough um but then you know in the summer our greens are a lot firmer but they're generally slower than uh than the ones on tour so you know you take that we have i mean i i think i mean I think we have a a major major problem in in, in Scotland with um, a just simple facts of life, which are if you want to win a tournament on the PGA Tour, or the European Tour, and you look at putts gained, whatever number that is, I'm guessing it's roughly about three three and a half per round. Mm-hmm. But we don't have greens that we can practice on consistently, um, so we can go out and tour. And compete. So, my argument's always been backed up by the data, and the data shows that like the, the most important thing about winning a golf tournament, yeah, you've got you you know you've got to ball strike it, and a lot of Scottish guys do because you can't play a links golf without being a pretty good ball striker. Yeah, the windy. But, but fun. That. Yeah, but fundamentally, you've got to putt well, um, and if you don't have that. There are some weeks you can get very close, but most weeks you're going to have to putt well to win, and we don't have the facilities that match in with what the data suggests you need to be a winner. So, so, so I saw you. You were in the states, and your wife is uh, American, and you were practicing at at Hazeltine in Minnesota over the holidays. Is yeah. that the type of setup that you're talking about? Yeah, something something along those lines. I mean, we have a couple of indoor facilities in, in Scotland. Um, I haven't been, uh, some of them are private. Um, one of them has just recently opened. That I haven't been to yet other than a chance, but the facility Hazeltine is, I mean, it's got a, a putting green indoor in the basement. That's probably 25, 30 feet by about 20 feet. So great for practicing your putting, um, working on your, working on a, on a skill effectively and trying to enhance a skill um, on a consistent green that's similar pace to the tour, a little bit of slope in it, um, and you don't have all these variables which are, you know, bumps in the green, uh, wind especially is a, is a major thing um, for us, and just a consistent surface to put on. Mm-hmm. So you can you can work on and try and improve your um, your putting that way, and I think that's that's something that 
we hopefully can address in the in the near future. Um, I understand there's facilities at Northwest and a lot of the northern colleges that that help them out in the winter. Um, I've seen some facilities there which look incredible. Yeah. So you were a part of like the the Scottish golf, the like performance program when you were an amateur, correct? Yeah, I was from almost age 15. I was in the what we call the Scottish squads and um, progressed through what was the Scottish Golf Union, which now is just called Scottish Golf, I believe. Mm-hmm. So like uh, there they pick up your like travel expenses, tournament entry fees, and then like coaching fees. Is that how it kind of works? Um, they, what happens is they, they pay for some of your expenses, not all of them, but once, once you're like a full, what do you say? A full squad member of the Scotland setup, then, um you get reasonable expenses so you still have to put in money of your own to go go away and play tournaments but they assist you with um that and then the major thing is is providing help with resources like strength and conditioning um physio um coaching if if needed um so you may have your own coach you work with he may come to the squad sessions um and they will liaise and work on that um but over the i think over the last say 10 years it's it's changed a lot for the better so it's 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 really really good now and the guys have um a great structure behind them and a great performance setup but with anything, it can always get better. Mm-hmm. How how would you compare? I, and obviously, you n- never were a part of it, but compare it to like a I know England has it, Ireland has it, Australia has it. it are they all pretty comparable, or is there one that kind of stands out? Um, I would say it's funny. I think we. So I so I would split it into two. Um, I would split it into your job is to sort of produce great amateur and great amateur teams, and I think we've done a really good job of that. We've always had a good success rate of in amateur golf, um, especially with our team performances. Um, if you look at us winning European Championships, when I played home internationals, we really played well and almost dominated for about three years which is, is England, Ireland, Wales, um, and Scotland play every year. Um, we did well in the Europeans. Um, we did all pretty good in the, in the Eisenhower. Not great, but I think top 10. Um, but there's not... But the problem is we've, for one reason or another, we struggled to produce really good professionals in the last maybe seven or eight years. Whereas, you know, we're level pegging with England the amateur, but then when it comes to professional, they seem to produce a, a lot more professionals, a lot more professionals who make it to a higher level. But but they have a population of 55 million and far more people playing golf. So it's not like for like, if you see, where I'm, see what I mean. Yeah, 
That's I've always wondered why the states don't have it, but it could just be it's just so big, you know. It, I think it's I think it's so big, and the universities, like, the university budgets outweigh what what the Scottish golf budget would be. Yeah. I mean, tenfold easily. That makes a like, lot of sense. Like I hear stories that are just to me are just incredible. Like I think this might be a mistake, but roughly speaking, I think um, uh, Georgia Tech, I believe, were, because I used to live in Atlanta at the time, were looking for a new practice facility and they built a new one downtown in Atlanta. And they had to obviously purchase the land, they had to build a clubhouse, turf it, do everything with it. I think it cost $13 million to do that. Yeah, I think Illinois built one that was like eight or nine million on uh, on campus. It's I, that's it's crazy, and it's like they these kids they go to school and they hit uh, they can hit on a range that has every different type of grass, kind of like what you were talking to. They can practice putting on Bermuda grass, even though they're in Illinois. Yeah, I mean that that to me is unbelievable. The resources they have to do that, the vision they have to do it is is pretty impressive. Um, but what I would say is it, it's really important to have good resources, but even I fell into the, this trap is that when I was in Scotland, I was far more hardened to traveling, playing in tough conditions. So then when I got to like a nice country club, I'd be like, oh, this is unbelievable. Look at this. Look, there's new Pro V1s in the range. Like, you know, this is we're putting off turf instead of enough mats. There's no wind. You know, the greens are running at like 10 and a half. This is incredible. Whereas sometimes you can build up these great facilities. But if I was a coach, yeah, I'd let them practice the facility. But one day a week, I'd take them to the worst place, worst golf course mm-hmm. in wherever they were and make them play. And I want to see them hit it out of like rubbish lies, putting greens that aren't that great deal with conditions um, and see how their attitude develops over that day and see how they work with that. Because when you have everything at your disposal, it's only going to get worse from there because it doesn't, it's not all, um, it's not all 100% first class facilities everywhere you go, especially when you're starting out in yeah. professional golf. Like the challenge tour, I bet you, you probably played a lot of places that were, uh, suspect at best on conditioning yeah i mean challenger's got a lot of good courses and it's a great tour to to build off but when i played you know sometimes there wasn't a driving range you know you're just hitting a net and then you teed off on the first Mm -hmm. so you know you've got to you've got to deal with that and um you have to and then you go and play you know qualifying school and um you know say the weather hasn't been great and the golf course isn't in great condition you've got to deal with that and uh I think I'm a big believer that adversity makes you very strong and it's not in the peaks that we build our character, it's in the troughs. And when you're down in the the, sort of trenches, that's where you build your character and your belief and your determination, your motivation, which will see you get to the top. And when you're at the top, you need to remember that. 
Yeah, I I think golf is in, it's a different sport in the sense that like you almost lo- learn more when you fail, like when you get in a moment and you fail, because then the next time you you remember that and you might think differently, right? Oh yeah, we've all been there, you know. Especially in professional golf, you walk off and you you do question yourself. Even the top players, I'm sure they question themselves: is this is this what I want to be doing? Is this sometimes it feels like it's torture, you know? Yeah. Um, but there's a you know there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I think you need to have good people around you really to support you and be a positive impact and and pick you up when when times are down. That's a that's a that's something that I have, and it's something that's a, a major. I'm not saying I've I'm not saying I've been an incredible player, but the success that I've had is attributed to people that are there for me when I ultimately need them. Because you know, everybody, maybe from the outside, it looks great. You know, these guys, you know, top players in the world, you know, making millions and flying on private jets and, you know, um, holidaying in the Bahamas, and, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, just like in everybody's life, you know, you get these times where they can be pretty hard and you've got to have those people around you which provide a, um, a safety net and, and pick you up when you're feeling down. Mm-hmm. So with it being kind of a new year, how do you – in new season for you is it do you get do you just kind of keep rolling from season to season or is do you do you have a kind of new season structure or like have a mentality to approach it um well i try and clock out um i was very much a guy who would be off season i would just keep going i keep practicing keep working on it but i realized it's different now. I've got a family, you know, I spend time with them, but I really sort of hold myself off and get away from it as much as possible in order that when I come back, I'm refreshed, I'm ready to go. Because it's not always the time that you're playing. Sometimes the most important time is a rest period. Um, you know, I analyze the year, I think about what I did well, think about what I didn't do well, I test equipment. Um like to settle on equipment before I tee up in the first tournament. Um, just think about scheduling. Try and try and do a lot of like advanced work so that when I'm at the tournament, I don't need to. I just need to focus on that tournament and come into it fresh and and but at the same time still sharp. That's why I go to Dubai early doors to get good practice um, and just be. You know, sounds sounds a bit of a, a little bit cliched, but you know, attitude is number one. Train like train like you're number two. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good good mentality to have. You got to have confidence in this game. <laughs> that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, um, and uh, Scot- Scottish 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 confidence is uh, is is like pessimism, really. To be honest, it's not. It's, 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 Scots have never been shouting from the rooftops, and if you do, you, you get dragged down pretty quick. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a. What I do admire about a 
a lot of Americans, a lot of young Americans, is they really are confident and aggressive, and they play with a you know a swagger uh, about them. Even even the people who are great ambassadors for the game, like Spieth, you know, he's just he's got he's he's got an edge in there. You know, you could see that with that punts on uh, on fifteen open last year. He's yeah. like. You pick that ball at the hole, you know, he's got that little edge that I like. That's I really like that kind of style of player, confident, but a little kind of little edge to them, very, um, very strong in their belief that they know what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, scheduling, I, what do you think about like the unique formats that the European uh, tour has been trying out in, in recent years? Um, I like the ideas. I think I, I I honestly don't know if it's if it's a game changer or not. I, I probably couldn't ask that question. What I do like about them is that they are being proactive in testing new um, new formats of game out in the professional game trying to make it more appealing to try to make the product more appealing to the general public, um, especially the younger generation. Um, and just give them kudos. They're, they're trying, you know, yeah. they're not saying we're going to, we're going to turn things around, but they're, they're definitely um, making people think, raising awareness. And, uh, and instead of just standing there planning, they're actually executing and getting it done. Um, which I think in the golf world, like people talk so much and they just like, I just, sometimes I'm just like, you know what, if you want something, you go out there and get it, just get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, stop talking about it and get it done. Yeah. I, I like the idea of uh, changing up like the, the, the short matches was like a really cool, that was the golf sixes. Was yeah, really the cool. golf sixes. Yeah, and having it in a city, um, like it was in the heart of uh, London, right? Well, this well, this is from my point of view. This is the one thing I would change. They had it at the Centurion Club, which is outside of London, um, and it's a very good golf course. It's a lovely facility, very very good. But I'd have it. I I'd, I'd have it as close to the city centre as, as possible. I'd have buses running, free buses running on loop from the city centre, you know, um, make it as easy as possible for people to be exposed to that tournament. And, um, and all, you know, you've really got these days, though, and the difference between America and I would say one of the big differences between America and Europe is that when you have a golf tournament, it's a social event, you know. Mm-hmm. You'll get guys who will say, you know, in the office, you work nine to five. Say, oh, they've got that. Um, what do you call that? That Phoenix Open going on, and they've got Tiesto playing, and I think it'll go on there for the day. I mean, I'm not into golf, but it looks looks a good fun event. Whereas, generally in Europe, it's although there is some social aspects to it, it's generally more people who actually play golf and take a a firm interest in golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely. I mean, the Phoenix one is like. I I feel like it's a kind of an outlier, but for the mm-hmm. for the most part, like the I know the Nelson is a big social event, and 
they do it's so much with those corporate hospitalities that makes it and hospitality tends to make it much more social on on the american tour yeah i mean that's it's probably a little bit more that way in places like dubai abu dhabi because there's you know people love coming to events and it's a great you know sun's on your back and it's a great little walk in the green grass when there's desert around you so um a little bit more that way in i would say the new markets but we have a lot of established markets and it's probably more the other way with more golf golfers who come to the events so um do you set like do you have goals for this year or are you just kind of you just try and play your best and wherever it goes it goes well my mission is kind of i always like to take the viewpoint that i've kind of got to be be the best i can be so effectively don't worry about Rory McIlroy or Jordan Spieth. I just got to be the sort of the best Richie Ramsey I can be. Um, and I try and do all the things I can do every week to do that. And and uh, if if I miss a cut and I walk away, I walk, walk away with my head held high. But at the same time, if I, I finish second, I walk away with my head held high. So, um, you know, I really want to get back in the winner's circle because – Effectively, that there's nothing better than winning. Let's be honest. Um, and you know, race Dubai is obviously a big thing. You always want to be in that that seasoning and tournament in Dubai, um, and get a little bit more feel for you know playing in those WGCs and those those major tournaments because I played in the US Open Open this year, and I, I feel a lot more comfortable playing in them. And I feel that I've I played good at the Open this year. Um, fourth last group on the Saturday, but I feel like I've got a little bit more in the tank to show I didn't quite finish it off. Yeah, you're you're right in the thick of it, and then the, the weekend, which is you know, it's uh, the, the major championships, obviously. But I mean, to a certain extent, I, I so instead of overrated, underrated, are major championships overrated when discussing players' legacy? That's a great question. That's a very good question. I would say no. I think it's the main deter- determination of how good a player they are. Um, the WGCs have an impact because the fields are so strong. Um, I would love to see WGCs split differently. I'm a staunch believer that I know there's one in Mexico, but yeah, <laughs> it seems like but, there should be one in the at the home of golf. <laughs> there's, there's, well, there's one in Mexico, but let's be honest for the for the lion's share of the last few years, there's been three in America and there's been one in China. And if you want to grow the game worldwide, you don't have three in America, but. What what why what's the reason they're there? It's because the sponsors put up the money and they've got fantastic sponsors in America, and a large share of the best golfers in the world live there, so it's easy for them to get to tournaments and play there, which makes the fields great, which makes the sponsors happy, and brings excitement and a great product to the fans. So I don't blame them for putting there, but the I think one of the founding things was that they should be. They're all world golf events. They're not American golf events. So 
That's uh, you know. Yeah, I completely agree, especially when it's the World Golf Championships, and and then you look at the golf courses they play, and they play Austin Country Club, which is like it's a nice golf course, but it's this is a World Golf Championship. Um, you play Firestone, same kind of you know idea, the the Mexico course, and then they play in China at a uh, at a brutal golf course there, but like it's like. Why why aren't these hosted at like a great course in Australia, a great course in the British Isles, a great course in America, and and obviously you hit it with sponsors, but like that would be such a better product in my mind. Yeah, I would. I you know what I would love to see, <clears throat> and I've said this a lot. Is, um, I'm not saying, you know, you have to have. Basically, you have to the sponsors, you have the money to put it there, right? But I would love to see a world golf event in Ireland. Now, I am, I, I love Scotland, and I am immensely proud to be Scottish, and I love playing here, uh, I love living in Edinburgh, and everywhere I go, I carry the saltire with me. But the atmosphere and the fans in Ireland are as good as it pretty much gets. Um. And they, because of the courses they have as well, and the players they have, you know, talking about McElroy and um, G-Mac, you know, Darren, all these guys have, have added to it, Hyington. I think they generally deserve a world golf event. Um, and the fans you would get in the hype would be incredible. And if you think about it, what's well, effectively one of the closest places to the US. Yeah. So it's not, not actually... You know, if you lived in, okay, a, for the West Coast guys, but if you lived on the East Coast of America. It's shorter I mean, from New York to Ireland than New York to L.A. Well, there you go. There's there's my point precisely. And I think the, the difference in the, um, the, the warmth, uh, the atmosphere and stuff you would get would be incredible. And, and I, I genuinely think in the future that's the way – if you'd have it, you know, say you have the Irish Open one year in the north, have a world golf event in the south. Okay, would it would it work? I think it would. Um, I think, you know, Rory obviously does a, a hell of a job promoting the Irish Open, but, um, you know, and it's a, it's, a, it's a life experience for a lot of these guys, but I bet a lot of these guys haven't gone there and played. And maybe you could go over there with your family and play some nice golf courses, experience the... The hospitality you do in Ireland, which is is first class, um, and like I say, let's be honest, logistically, it's it it's one of the easiest ways you could do it. Yeah, I uh, I would agree. I mean, like, who would and I and the interest would be so much higher. Like, how many more people are going to tune in to watch the WGC at Royal County Downs versus um, Firestone? Oh yeah, and you you know you'd. I mean, uh, you, you'd sell it out. There's no doubt. But the reason they're, they're taking it, one of the reasons they're taking the Open back to Port Rush is because when we had the Irish Open there, they sold out. The only time I think they've ever sold a European Tour event out and the weather wasn't even that great. Hmm. Um, and it was an incredible atmosphere. Yeah, I know they've changed the golf course a bit, but um, I think that was one of the, the reasons they took it back there. And, and it's great to see that happen. Um, but I definitely think that in the future is 
I, I can't really see a major um, a major fault with it, if I was honest. So we've gotten on to uh, kind of courses in, in Ireland. What are uh, what are your favorite courses and in, in just generally the British Isles? British Isles, always very tough because there's so many golf courses. And I would say, straight away, I would say, I haven't played them all. So, you, so let's just say you got ten rounds. How are you uh-huh. going to split up the ten rounds? Oh right, okay. So this is right. Ten rounds is great, right? So this is tough. You can spend. You can do multiple at at a course if you want to do multiple. Okay. Um, so what I would do would be. Okay, so you've got to have St Andrews in there straight away because. Everybody goes on about it. It's a home of golf, but it's a magical place. And it, walking around there and just walking up 18 and playing 17 and hitting the tee shot in the first, there's something special. You can't you can't put a price on it. You can't put it together. It has something that other places simply don't have. So it's a special place, and I would always try and get a game on there if you can. Um and it's very deceptive because it is actually a good golf course. It makes you think a lot more than um, you do the first time you play it. You've got to maybe play it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, probably more so a course that I could play every day for a week is Muirfield. Muirfield is an incredible place. Um Golf course design wise, as probably as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, shot making ability, um, fairness, condition, experience. Um, you know, slopes, look, everything is is just. It's a fantastic day out. Lunch is is brilliant. The members are always great crack at. Um, to have a big lunch and maybe a few glasses of wine and then play foursomes in the afternoon. Um, that is a real golf day out. Uh, number three, pretty tough, but these three all sit together um, and all for different reasons. I would say Turnberry, Birkdale and Loch Lomond. Uh, Turnberry because it's just a majestic place great history, um, beautiful views. I haven't played the golf course since it's been redone, but I just I played the open there once and it's it's just a it's just a very, very good golf course, strong, um and quite iconic in the Scottish West Coast. Um Birkdale, what a what a fantastic golf course that is. I mean the views a lot more like my home course of Royal Aberdeen where you tee up on the dunes and you hit down um, into the valleys, the back nine. I mean, I'd say from 11 onwards, you know, eight of the best finishing holes you'll ever find. Um, obviously got a lot of history there. Um, and just a course that I, I love playing. Aesthetically, it looks great on the eye. Um, tests you the way you think around it, but at the same time, it's scorable. You know, there's a score out there to be had. Um, Loch Lomond, uh, again, 
very similar to Muirfield. Experience-wise, incredible. Staff there are fantastic. Willie in the locker room, exceptional. Remembers your name, even though you've maybe not been there for two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, service is first class. Ross House, one of the um, best clubhouses you'll ever see in your life. Um, at, at, a, at a setting that is probably one of the most spectacular, not in the British Isles, but in probably the world. Um, and a very underrated golf course that Tom Weisskopf designed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a joy to play there. Uh, really is a just fantastic golf course. Um, where's that me up to? One, two, what is it? Andrews Muirfield. I think five, right? Five, yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put Sunningdale in there. Yeah, and you could you could play the new or the old, both exceptional. You've got to what I would like to term laser beam it around there. If you hit it offline, you'll be buying more golf balls in the pro shop. <laughs> um, no doubt about that. Great halfway house, fantastic halfway house. Oh, I mean, leave leave twenty minutes to stuff your face in there. Um, sausages in a roll, smoked salmon. Um, I'm sure the members have a couple of cheeky drinks as well. So that's a that's a great little kind of touch. Um, but again, fantastic golf course design, old school greens that just sit into you, um, but plays quite firm and fast, especially in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Colton, Willie Park. There. Well, just he doesn't get Colt doesn't really, he doesn't really get much better than him. Um, so I would, I would, I would say that would be a, That'd I would class Sunningdale as one. And if you could play the old or the new, play thirty six that day, and I'd a little bit like Muirfield, I'd, I'd play eighteen in the morning, lunch. And then foursomes in the afternoon because that's the tradition at Muirfield. Okay. Um, so we're up to six. Oh, God, we've got four left. It's tough. Uh, I'm trying to think of the open courses. I, I don't know where it put Carnoustie, but I feel that it's got to be in there mm-hmm. just because it, it's as fair a test of golf as you will find. And it's always, irrespective of the wind, it's always a place you love to go to. The greens are immaculate, normally the best surfaces you'll you'll put on in Scotland, I would say. Um, Muirfield are close, Nairn are very good, but uh, but Carnoustie tend to be exceptional. Um, And the finish, I mean, what a finish, what a finish that is. I mean... You always talk about winning tournaments and coming down the stretch and have a lot, a lot of pressure. Well, 16 is a tough hole. Mm-hmm. 17 is, is is very tricky, but 18 is probably, I think, one of the toughest finishing holes, if not the toughest finishing hole you'll play. Um, it's, a, it's just a great place to play golf and obviously a huge amount of history with the, the people who have won there. Yeah, it's... Um, it's that's that's got to be a good course that sets up well for you. It sets up well for me because I think it's a ball striker's golf course. Yeah, 
you can't you can't fake it around there. You can't just go, oh, I'll just putt well and I'll get away with it. You've got to really know where the misses are, stay out of the bunkers, and sometimes you've got to challenge the bunkers. Um, I think you've just got to flat out play around there. No doubt about it. Um, can't fake it. Um, and it'll be it'd be good to see how the best players in the world set up to it's it's definitely scorable. It's definitely scorable. Um but it's just a very, very fair golf course. Um I would put Royal Aberdeen, my home course, in there, especially the older course that we used to play when I was a junior, the original more of the original design. Mm-hmm. Um it was you know, I, I used to play it in the front nine. I used to, front nine I loved. I used to go away and play all these different golf courses that pe- pe- people used to rant and rave about and speak on and say, this is a great golf course. And uh, I used to come back and just think, this place is just way better. Um, really great memories there, fantastic membership um, that have helped me uh, and helped a lot of people. Um progress their golf and progress you know off the course um and just a place that is close to me and I, i'd love to go back i'd love to go back there and, and and play and try and um enjoy the golf course and the traditions because it was it's the seventh oldest club in the world it's 1780 it was established so um some great traditions there and um just a fortunate to be a member there mm-hmm. um i've got two left two left dominated dominated by scottish golf courses yeah uh, any, any more heathland courses i'm not i haven't really played a heathland course that i thought really stood out for me um i'm trying to think that so there's a couple that there's, there's a great one Moortown is definitely something that I would I mm-hmm. would I wouldn't include in my top 10 but it would be somewhere where I'd play that was uh, Mackenzie's uh, first design yeah it's in I think I believe it's in Leeds and it had the Ryder Cup in uh, yeah, a long time ago 30s maybe mm-hmm. yeah I think that was Mackenzie's first design yeah, there's, there's, there's a few courses up there that kind of fall off the radar um, just because of where they are. They're not down south, so they don't get written about too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and they aren't open courses. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't actually played a ton of golf courses in England that I've been blown away by. Um I might get some backlash for that <laughs> comment. Hey, you're being um, loyal to your country. Yeah, yeah. Proud Scotsman. Um, <laughs> I would say Port Rush has to be in there. I haven't played all these other ones that are far away, like La Hinch, Tralee, uh, Waterville, um, and all these ones. And I would love to play there. I think County Down's good. But I just think Port Rush is better. I think the design is better. I think the views are better. The, the golf course is more in front of you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think again, being close to the town, it has that great atmosphere. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see how their new holes bed in and how the guys perform at uh, at the Open in a few years' time. Mm-hmm. Have you played uh, Dornick? You know what? I haven't. Yeah, you got to get played, it out there. Played Dornick. I've played Skibo, which is very good, but I haven't played Dornick for. I don't know why I haven't played it. I just never ventured up there. I'm, this is going to sound really funny, but I'm notorious for falling asleep really quickly. <laughs> so, right, um, bide with me for a minute. So, driving long distances can be tough for me because sometimes, I mean, the other day I was at Muirfield and I got up early and played and we had lunch, beautiful lunch, stuffed, and I had to drive back and uh, I had to stop 10 miles down the road to get a coffee because I said to the guy who I was down with, I was like, my eye, I'm going to be like a nodding dog here, so I need to stop and get a coffee. Um, so the courses that are, I mean, Dornick's a long way north, so that's that's my only excuse for not playing it. That I can't really drive that far without falling asleep. What? Uh, where's, the, what's the, <laughs> what's the, where's the weirdest place you've fallen asleep? Oh God, where did I fall asleep? Uh, I, f- I remember in Argentina, I fell asleep on a on a moving bus um, when I was standing. I remember getting a Challenger event, and the bus was packed. I had to stand. I was that tired that I nearly fell over because I fell asleep standing up while the bus was moving, which was quite impressive. Um, <laughs> That's uh, I, you get in the wrong spot. I I went to Argentina last uh, or maybe two years ago with my wife, and I I went for a run, and I got lost, and I ended up running like into like a bad neighborhood, and it it was like one of the worst experiences of my life because I didn't have a phone that worked, and I don't speak Spanish, and I like was trying to, you know, figure out how to get back, and I ended up running like fifteen miles that day so i got a good workout oh, yeah i bet you ran at a fair pace as well <laughs> it was it was a brutal experience yeah i've not uh a, bu- um, a bus in argentina would be really tough to fall asleep on though i fell asleep i don't i don't remember this because it was a night out but someone said to me i almost i fell asleep in a in a club and i was cl- i was next to a speaker <laughs> but that was that there was a few other variables that were involved in that. It wasn't just uh, when you get a couple of drinks, you know, it's like. <laughs> it's uh, what, um, what what's the, what's the best what, course in Scotland that nobody knows about? It's right. like under so, the radar. So just, just quickly before I answer that, the, the last one on the list, oh, yeah. which is the, which is the best one on the list that's slightly off the radar is a place called the island which is outside dublin in malhide and it is phenomenal great course great course you got to play that beautiful dunes fantastic membership and there's a lot of other courses around there good port marnix just down the road and port marnix is a is, is a great golf course as well but the island is is really cool cool spot i really like that I think uh, Sally from No Laying Up played there. That was 
uh, he was he was talking about that place. It was it was great. Yeah, definitely worth a definitely worth a trip. Um, good question. The best course. Let's say Amer- Amer- Americans fly- would just overlook. Um. Well, a lot, of them, a lot of them really love North Berwick, and it is a good course, but it's not under the radar. It's not like you know a lot. A lot of guys would have heard of it. Um, sorry, one sec. Um, you know what? I'm going to go with this place, which is a pretty cool place to go to. It's actually west of Aberdeen, about 50 miles. It's a place called Ballater. Um, golf club and it's actually not far from Balmoral where the Queen has her mm-hmm. uh, summer residence um, it's surrounded by hills um, and you play a long sort of very sand based um, turf beside the water uh, beside the river that runs the River Dee which runs from the highlands all the way out to the water in Aberdeen um, it's quite short, quite tricky course, but a lot of shots where you hit hit it up and you can see the ball heading into the hills and then it drops down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not too sure I designed it, but it's a great place to go and play, especially if you were in the Highlands and you were coming down that way. Um, it's 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 as it sounds funny, but it's as Scottish as you're going to get because you're you're kind of uh, surrounded by these beautiful hills. There's castles on the trip from Aberdeen to uh, Ballater and obviously if the Queen the Queen could be in Balmoral residence in the summer when the best time to play is <laughs> it's uh the uh there's I, I gotta get there for like I gotta spend a lot of time there I feel like there's like hundreds of great golf courses oh there's tons of places I, I know Sully was over and we, we sorted them out with a game at Royal Aberdeen um and the boys took him out at night, so I think he enjoyed that. <laughs> this uh, this uh, this fall maybe I think I'm thinking, but um, how uh, how do you what kind of sparked uh, your recent kind of interest in golf course architecture? Last question, and then we'll get some overrated underrated. Um, you know what it was, and it's it's bad to say it was just complete and utter bemusement and disappointment with some of these modern golf courses and 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 modern designers who have tackled uh redesign i just i honestly i don't know what the hell some of them are thinking i don't know how they've got jobs um it's it's i think we're just going through a period where we don't have a lot of good designers and for all the resources that they have, the product that they're producing is, I think, is pretty poor. It's, I think it's the it's changing, but there was there was so many years of bad, and I imagine you see it so prevalently when you go to like Asia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they they want to put the signature on it. And I don't know what it is, and it, and it 
it tends to be in the form of huge hills and humps and hollows that that a lot of the time look man-made and just look so false and don't are don't bring any playability to the golf course and they're trying to almost make it not impossible but just trying to make it really really hard to score it's like you know I'm going to defend par all the time but the best courses we play are the classics you know you want to play the golf course over and over again like I think the sign of a good golf course is if someone said well do you want to play this for five days in a row and a lot of these modern golf courses no but these old classics like Muirfield Sunnendale um uh, Carnoustie, uh, Turnbury, um, you just you just want to play them every day for the rest of your life. Yeah, I um, you know, this fall I got to go out to I played Sand Hills. I played sixty three holes in two days, and like since then, all I could think about is like, you know, like when you get to go see one of these great golf courses, like getting to play it multiple times, it just gets better every time. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much, um, so much character to it. So many different ways to play it. It changes every day. You know, it's 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 like one of those, especially those courses. I love those courses where you go out and you think, you know, I, I play good, but how did why did I not shoot like four or five better? Because the design sort of pushed me like it pushed, put a bit of pressure on me as in it looked really tight off on the tees but actual in fact there was lots of space there um and you know i missed it in the wrong spot and and, and you can't get up and down from there and, um oh, i want to get back out there and play that and i feel like i could shoot a better score because i've played it i understand a little bit more what the designer was thinking and how he's how he's he's fooled me almost um it's uh, that's, That's a, can't beat that. It's a, I feel like the really great golf courses, you almost walk off a lot of them saying like, you know what, that that golf course I could really go out and shoot a low number, but you very very rarely do. Yes, yeah, spot on, spot on, um, because it it protect you know it protects itself um, because it just lulls you into almost sometimes a false sense of security. You think you're doing fine and then it just hits you out of nowhere where you're like, oh, it just gets you. Um, And it's, I think it's it's a little bit sad. I said to someone the other day, um, obviously playing, playing Muirfield, um, we were talking about golf architecture and uh, I think that they're a great model. They, they, what they do with their golf course there is they, they mould it. They don't change it. They mould it over time. So, for instance, like they'll extend the green by four or five yards, uh, like they did on I think number five. So you get a back pin position when they play the open there. They'll make a bunker a little bit bigger, so it becomes more of a um, becomes more of a danger. They will shape a fairway a little bit more, so it feeds the player into one of the the fairway bunkers. Um, instead of dramatically changing it because it's a great golf course, you don't need to, you just need to slowly but surely mold it. Um, and it's a little bit like what we, what we have over here is we have, um, 
know if you have an in America, but listed buildings. Mm-hmm. So basically, in listed buildings, um, you have to have you can't really change the building too much. You can maybe change um, the internal parts of it, but the overall fundamental structure, things like the windows, the roof, the chimneys, the design of the building, you can't change that. You have to work with it. Um, and I really think that these old classics should almost be like listed buildings. You know, you really have to yeah. go through a lot of, not motions, but a, a lot of procedure in order to change some of these because I think a lot of people are given carte blanche for them and they destroy them and then you can't go back and, and, and redo them. You know how much better golf and like, and especially America would be if they, uh, if they had listed golf courses and, and they couldn't change them? I mean, it would, it would have changed the complete course of American golf. Oh, it would, you know, we just, it's it's like the golf course. The other thing is the golf course is your product. Generally, that's what people come to play. Yeah, there's experiences a lot of clubs, and that is great. But you know, most of the time, people go there to play the golf course, yeah. and and they join there because of the golf it, course. Yeah, because you because because you play the golf course, you think actually, oh, I love that. I would love to play that every week, and um, I think committees and designers you know i would love i would love to i would love to see a designer go into a golf course and say right we want you to do a redesign and him just to come back and say you know what you have 16 fantastic holes here i I don't think you should change much of it what what i think you should do is maybe redo some of the bunkers because they're they're falling in or or um, you know, to the holes, I would love to change a, a little bit because you know, modern technology, and maybe you move the bunker that's currently out of play now another twenty yards further up. Um, and I'd love to maybe narrow the fairway at three hundred yards or something like that, or add a tree to give a little bit more character to the hole, give a, a sight line off the tee, small things like that. Um, I, I would love to see and. I would say, hands down, the best redesign I've seen was the one at Wentworth that was done last year. But I think McGinley and Bjorn had some input into it. But McGinley is a—he's uh, obviously knows the history of the golf. Um, you know, played in the European Tours for a number of years, Ryder Cup, you name it, he's pretty much done it. Um, but he plays—I think he's a member at Sunningdale. Plays there a lot. Um, and he really softened the changes and tried to bring back the old cult into the West Coast at Wentworth, which was great to see. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, the redesign a few years ago was like one of the worst re- redesigns like in the history of golf. <laughs> um, yeah, I wasn't uh, overly impressed because I think the original design, the one that I grew up watching Seve play the world match play, you know, watching guys finish 3-3-3 three, three, three to finish birdie, eagle, eagle to win a match. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the course I grew up on where you had to run it in. That's the English Heathland classic type of golf course. Yeah, they almost tried to make it like a, uh, a Dark Ages of America, like 1970s course. 
Yeah, I don't think it is coming back. I mean, condition of it, the greens last year were absolutely first class, as good as you're going to get. Um, and the, the the they softened the golf course, as in they took away the the, the larger changes, the undulations that were put in it, and tried to bring back, like I say, more of the the cult feel and the atmosphere with um, a little bit more heathland in there. Um, less undulation in the greens. You could a bit more playability, as and you could run the ball in if you're in the rough. And a few little tall grasses off the tees, which give you a nice little sight line, a little nice little path to walk down and and shape the hole a little bit more, which I thought was a good idea. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right, let's uh, let's get this uh, done with some overrated underrated. You, you all ready? right. First one, golf in Ireland. Underrated. I think we we covered it earlier, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, fitness. I believe underrated. So, like, if you took like uh, like Monty, I I can't oh. imagine he, him being a fitness nut ever. He would be I... at a disadvantage in today's game. Um, his attitude and his belief make up for everything. He's he was a great had a great attitude and great belief. I think. Um, I would say underrated from the fact that I just think I find it very therapeutic, as in like mentally and stress free. Is a great. I think it's a great thing to do. Maybe not gym, but just exercise in general. Mm-hmm. You know, don't care if you go and play tennis or you play football with your mates. I just think it's it's the best medicine you can have. Yeah, he. Uh, how about him now? Never winning in America until the senior tour. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I don't know. It's strange because he he would have the game to suit a lot of some of the courses over there because he hits it so straight and very steady. But he just you know he played in America. He played in Europe a lot and. Um, you know, U.S. Open and um, those types of courses were were built for him. He just never got got the major that that probably he ultimately wanted. Yeah, the European Tour was is different then too. Like I feel like the European Tour then they kept all almost all their stars at home for the most part. Yeah, and I think he was, you know, the the world wasn't as small then. Mm-hmm. I would say and. And, you know, it was a lot more, European Tour was a lot more top-heavy. They didn't have the, the, the depth that they have now. They had, you know, huge strength. You look at the players, un, undoubtedly, you know, great to the game, Langer and Wiesnam and Faldo and Lyle and those guys. But, um, yeah, I think they just like playing in Europe and probably a lot of them had families, got kids, and they wanted to see the, you know, I know, I understand, you want to get back and see your family. Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, air travel has just gotten so much easier. All right, uh, backboarding. The What's issue, that? Of, you know, the not marking your ball, like that everybody complains about in professional golf. Like, say, say you're in the bunker. I'm playing. You know, I got I got sponsors exemption, and I go and I don't mark my ball after I hit a sand shot, and you're in the bunker. And oh right, okay, yeah. Um, 
I think it's overrated. I just, I, it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah, it's just something that's blown out of proportion, really. I think. See, so it's blown out of proportion. I, 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 when I play in tournaments, I feel like that backboarding's prevalent, but it's it's so rare for it to actually have an effect. But yeah, if 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 the guy chips it from sixty yards and it goes to three feet. And the guy's playing with me, I'm just like, well, I'm not going to wait for him to walk all the way up there and hit it. But if he's lag-putted it, and he's putted up there, and he's 40 feet away, and he, he looks at me and says, oh, mark it, I'm like, that's fine. doesn't bother me either way. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, But I'm not going to probably wait if he's miles down the fairway and I'm on the greenside bunker. Yeah. All right, last one. Um, I don't know if you've played it. Kill Spindy. Kill Spindy played it, yeah. Um, probably underrated, I'd say. It's it's a beautiful part of the world, East Lillian. Lovely part of the world. Um, lovely wee towns. And you go down there, and it's a short wee course, beside the water. Um, bomb round there in under three hours because it's quite short. Um, just a good place to go out and play with your mates and try and shoot as low a number as you possible while enjoying fantastic views and dare I say some sunshine and some short sleeves if that's possible in Scotland <laughs> when what's the best month to be in Scotland ah good question I always get asked this a lot um well the other thing is well when you come to Scotland everybody says oh it must rain all the time right on the west coast it can rain for days but on the east coast it's a way drier and Kilspindy, and well, basically where Muirfield is in East Lothian, that's one of the driest places in Scotland. So it's not as wet as people talk about. But um, the warmest time is July, August. But that's at the same time, that's the busiest time. So the schools get off on the 1st of June. So I would say like, End of May is not a bad time to come because it's not chaotic. It's not chaotic. The schools are still there. Um, you get most of the run of the golf courses, and they've had enough of a growing season that con- conditions of the golf course are good. Mm-hmm. Or play it like late August, early September. All right, I got to do one of those times. I don't want crowds. Oh, if you don't like, yeah, like you know. Everybody will just come over around about the Open, Scottish Open, start playing golf. So May time is a good time. And the other thing about May time that is a huge bonus is the longest day of the year, I believe, is the second week in June. Mm-hmm. So if so, where I'm in Edinburgh, I'm not that far north, but it gets light here at quarter to five, maybe half four, and it gets dark on a bright day at half ten. Oh my god! So, you like, you, if you get up early, like, say you're, say you're, like, in Gullen, for example. Gullen's a good example. It's a little town in East Lothian, and they played the Scottish Open on Gullen Number One course this year, right? So, uh, I think so. Two years, two years ago, but it's back there this year. Like, if you just book in a B and B, you can get up early, maybe make a sandwich walk down the first tee with your clubs, you know, a few hundred yards, tee off, 
I don't know, 5.30, bomb round, um, in for breakfast, you know, three hours, in for breakfast, half eight, have breakfast, get the train in Edinburgh, have a day in Edinburgh, come back out, and then go and tee off before people, a lot of people go and play after work or come off work early, try and tee off about, let's say, like, quarter to four or something like that. And then bomb round there, a little bit of a late dinner, a few drinks, watch the sunset, you know, play two rounds of golf and you're still fitted in the day out of Edinburgh. Brilliant. You know what I mean? You can do so much. Man, I might, I might have to move. You might have me sold. I'm going to move to the to the east side of uh, Scotland. Greatest country in the world, mate. It was voted that way. Greatest <laughs> country in the world. I always, I always tell my wife that. She's an American, but she never believes me. It's uh, I don't know. Americans are we're we're stubborn. So, <laughs> um, but uh, hey, Richie, it was great having you on, and um, wish you the best of luck this year. You're starting in uh about a week and a half now. Yeah, week and a half, Abu Dhabi, HSBC. So, looking forward to it. Rain to get the the short sleeves out next week in uh in dubai and the shorts out tan up the legs <laughs> get the get the, uh, get the ob steaks uh tan tops. oh geez uh yeah they're um they're pretty damn white there's no doubt about that <laughs> all right well we'll uh hopefully run into each other here in the in the in the season at some point and uh good luck all right, cool. Nice talking to you. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 